So there's a, a teaching that says that the entire Torah is included in the very first parasha of the Torah, Bereshit, the beginning. And all of that is included in the very first word of the Torah, Bereshit itself, just the word Bereshit. And all of that is included in the bet, in the letter bet of, of the Torah. That, uh, that the way the Torah works is that the klau, the broader picture, is in the prat, is in the specific pr picture. You know, like they say, if you take a leaf and you look under a magnifying glass, you can see the shape of the entire tree in, in that leaf. And every atom contains in it the, the entire being. So the same with, with Torah. And that's true of the, of the revealed Torah and also the hidden Torah. And so they say about Tanya the exact same thing, that in the very first word of Tanya is, is contained its, its entire message. And the first word of Tanya is Tanya. Uh, we saw last week that the author did not call his work Tanya. He called it Likutei Amarim, a, a collection of sayings. Or Sefer Shel Benanim, the book for the Benanim, for, for the intermediate people, the strugglers. That's how he titled his book. But we don't call it that. No one calls it that. It's, it's always called Tanya, the book of Tanya. And that's after the very first word of Tanya, which is Tanya. Tanya is an Aramaic word, and it translates as, it was taught. It was taught. Now, usually it's a term used when you're quoting a particular saying of one of the sages of the Talmud. Uh, you say the word Tanya in Aramaic. In the Talmud itself, it says Tanya when it's, when it's quoting a, a, a section of teachings um, called a Brisa. It's a particular type of teaching. When, it's, when, when it quotes it, it says the word Tanya. And so really, the fact that the very first word of the book of Tanya is Tanya is because it quotes a Talmudic teaching. Which makes it a bit of a strange title. It, it was taught. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's like a phrase. It's, like a, it's, it's a very strange thing to call, to call a book. Especially since the author didn't call it that. So why do we call it that? Even though already in the author's time, in the Alter Rebbe's time, they started calling it that, and it is referred to, to as, as the Tanya. Seems like a very strange way to call it when the word itself doesn't seem to have meaning. And so various uh, commentaries, including the students and the children and grandchildren of the Alter Rebbe, they said that there's actually deeper meaning in the word Tanya. There's, uh, it's written in, in Kabbalistic works that Tanya has a, a, another meaning and another translation that, that uh, the word Tanya means not only it was taught, the literal translation of it, but Tanya is the name of a particular demon, uh, a negative force in the world. In, in Kabbalistic writings it says there are various different spiritual forces in the world, positive and negative. There are good forces that lift us up, there are negative forces that get in the way. There's one negative force in the world called Tanya. Its name is Tanya. And it specifically is the force that tries to stop people from going deep into Torah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an internal resistance that we have to go too deep. Uh, to, to learn something on the surface, to, to be superficial, that's okay. But to go deep into things, particularly to go into the mystical, there's, there's a bit of a, a resistance we have. And that's because there's this demonic force, like a, like a negative energy called Tanya, it's, that's its name, that stops people from going into the deeper side of Torah. 
Is it specific to Torah or is it specific to Torah? Yeah, yeah. You could, I mean, you could, you could expand it, but it, it means specifically in, in Torah. Okay. And so, this is this is where you you will find, and some of us have had this experience ourselves, where we have a certain reluctance to get into these topics. You know, even even Tanya, some people would say, oh, "I'm going to a Tanya class." Tanya, no, no, that's not for me. That's uh, that's that's esoteric. That's up. I'm not on that level. That's 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 not not my thing. I like to read what the Torah says, not the deeper you know stuff. There are people who who are scared of it, scared of mystical things. The Alter Rebbe, when he wrote the Tanya, he wanted to combat that force. He wanted to counter it and open up the opportunity to 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 connect to to the deeper Torah. And so, he, he used the word Tanya in the very first word of the book yeah. to like pull, yeah, pull, pull the carpet under it. Like, we got you, we got you, Tanya. Tanya, you join us, Tanya. You, you come along. And, and so, they say that when, when we learn Tanya, that fear melts away. There's, no, there's nothing to be scared of. No, nothing, nothing too airy-fairy, nothing, nothing, nothing too out there. It's actually, it'll be fine. And you see, when you learn it, it's fine. And that's why we call the book Tanya. That's one of the, the reasons why we call the book Tanya. Another reason is because the letters of Tanya, Taf, Nun, Yud, Aleph, can be rearranged to be read as Eitan. The word Eitan means? Strong. Strong. Resilient. 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 <laughs> yeah, like a, 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 an inner toughness. And... And so what the, what the Alter Rebbe wanted to achieve in Tanya is arousing the Eitan of our Neshama. We have in our soul this incredible resilience, a, a toughness, uh, an immovability. There's a part of us that can, can face anything, can go through anything and, uh, and make it, come out on top. That's the part of our soul that can face any challenge, any spiritual challenge, anything in the world. The Alter Rebbe, when he wrote Tanya, he wanted to appeal to that part of the soul to, to bring it out. And, and when you study Tanya, you're not just learning a book, but you're, you're energizing your soul. You're, you're revealing that part of your soul that, that can be enthusiastic again. You know, sometimes life uh, takes over and we, we get tired. We get, we get bored with life or we, we lose the fight. Tanya tries to bring it back and says, you've got it. You've got it in you. You've got the Eitan in your, in your Neshama. And, and we reconnect to it. So these are, these are several reasons. There are others why the book is called Tanya. Uh, the, the, the word itself encapsulates everything that the, the book is, is going to do. Take away your fear of exposing your soul and your deeper self. And by doing that, allowing that strong, immovable, unbeatable part of your soul to, to be revealed. That's, that's what the book of Tanya is doing. We're going to launch straight into it. Uh, and... Uh, you've got in front of you a translation of chapter one of Tanya. Uh, I thought, even though we have some fluent Hebrew speakers here, uh, not everyone is, and so I thought instead of grappling with the Hebrew text and translating everything, we'll just go straight to the English, that's what we're talking, that's the language we're speaking, and, uh, and we'll take it from there. I've got, in front of you is the entire chapter one, it, it's, it, go, it, it goes over sort of three pages in this English sheet. We're not going to get through the entire chapter today. Uh, but we're going to launch into it and start to get a feel for it. What he starts with is a Talmudic uh, contradiction. And let's have a look at what it is. It has been taught, Tanya, it has been taught. 
and where it has been taught in Tractate Nidda, the section of Talmud called Nidda, the end of the third chapter. An oath is administered to him, meaning to every person, before birth. Be righteous and be not wicked. And even if the whole world tells you that you're righteous, regard yourself as if you're wicked. This, the Talmud says, every one of us, our soul before we came into the world, we were made to make an oath. The, the angels that were sending us down to be born made us make an oath. They make us make a shavua, an oath, a promise. What is the oath? Shavua, shavua. Like a promise. What is the oath? Be a tzaddik. Be a righteous person. Do not be a wicked person. Promise that you're going to be a tzaddik. You're going to be a righteous person, not a, not a wicked person. And, continues the oath, even if the whole world tells you that you are righteous, regard yourself as wicked. Shuvah, and also not to get complacent. Right, so on the one hand, our soul, this is the soul before it comes into the world. Now, it should be known that our soul doesn't begin at birth. Our, our physical life begins at birth. Our soul exists before. It comes from, from the heavenly realms. It has, it has a pre-existence. The soul is up there in, in the heavenly realms, one with Hashem. And there's a certain point where it's chosen to start coming down. It's your turn to be born. Well, to come down. This, this, so, so, on that journey down, the soul is not simply sent down, but it is pulled aside and said, you're about to be born in the physical world. You're about to go into a physical body. Promise right now that you'll be a tzaddik, that you'll be righteous, and, not, and you will not be wicked. That the soul has to promise. Now, the Alter Rebbe is going to ask several questions about this, but just reading it, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. What, what This oath that we make, First of all, it seems to be superfluous. It seems to, to be a bit wordy. Be a tzaddik and don't be, don't be a rasha. Be a righteous person and not a wicked person. Well, if you're a righteous person, you're not a wicked person. Why, why the two parts of the oath? I promise I'll be a tzaddik and, and not a wicked person. Well, if you're a tzaddik, then you're not a wicked person. So why, why the two parts of the oath? And then, even if the whole world tells you that you are righteous... Still, you should look at yourself as wicked. Why? Why, why, why that? Which, which the Altar Rebbe is going to question. So, before we even get into the Altar Rebbe's questions, quoting this, this Talmud, by, by starting Tanya with this, it's an extremely powerful thing, because again, remember, what, Tanya is a book about you. It's, it's talking about you. This is not about somebody else. This is you. This, this is what happened to you. Your neshama, your soul, before coming down into the world, made this promise. Maybe this oath. What's the nature of an oath? Why would someone make a promise, an oath, a shvua? What's the concept of, of making an oath? Why would you ever do that? You usually do it in order to get something in return. It's like a contract. It's like an agreement. Mm. You're not just going and promise something for no reason. Usually you've got something spiritual, physical, whatever. But usually it's either you, you, you want someone to be helping, you want to, to come down to the world, you want whatever. You want to do a tikkun, so, but you usually want something. You don't mm -hmm. just go and, and promise for the sake of promising. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, here it's, it's administered to you. <coughs> you th this is not your choice. 
the angels come to you and say, before you go down to the world, swear. Swear that you're going to be righteous. The words you don't swear, does that mean you don't get to come down? Right. Do, do, do you have a choice here? Do you say, hmm, no, I, I plead the fifth, as, uh, you know, like, it doesn't seem that way. It seems this, this happens to everyone. We've all, we've all done this. We went through it. We, we did it. We promised we were going to be righteous and not, not wicked. Whether we, whether we kept it or not, we, we can discuss later. But, but we made the promise. Well, what's the nature of this promise? Who are we promising to? What, what for? Also, when you make a promise, it has to be something that is within your power to do. Yeah. The promise is to make the tshuva that you're coming for. The sin that you did before, you come to this world again to correct it. No? It's true that we do come to correct something. Is it only for Jewish people or is it for every person in the world? This is talking about Jewish people. But it could be that everyone in the world makes some version of it, has some, has some type of uh, promise or interaction. This is a description of the, of the Jewish path. So the Jewish person is born with the um, you know, Jewish family, already with the inheritance in, inside. So it becomes part of the nation by, by birth. So mm -hmm. it's part of the, going out to the world. It must be part of that um, ancient covenant. Mm -hmm. But since you said it also, other people, like the, the nations, also have the same process in Madame. Well, it could be different. It could be have a, they have a different, different oath. So, so interesting, the word in Hebrew for Shua, mashbin oto, mashbin, to, to be mashbia means to make somebody make an oath. Can we also be read masbia? With a, with a sin smolit, you can, you can read a mashbia or masbia. Masbia means to empower, to, to satiate, to, 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 to give someone the energy. And so the, the way that this was read was that the oath that is being made is also an empowerment that we're being given to be righteous and not, and not wicked. That before we come down into the world, we're, we're given awesome powers and energies <coughs> to face whatever challenges we're going to face. It's almost like you're, you're sent down into the world. It's preordained what obstacles are going to come in your path, what difficult things that you are going to have to face. And what particular challenges are your soul's mission and what you're going to have to go through in your lifetime. And at the same time, you're given the mission to be good, to be righteous, to overcome whatever challenges come to you. So you're also given the empowerment, the soul energies to face whatever you're going to face. And this is given to you before you're born. This is, this is the oath. If you think about it, somebody makes a promise to do something. If I say, I'm going to do it. Okay, I may or may not do it, but if I make an oath to do it, what am I saying? Commitment. I'm, I'm committing deeper. I'm saying, I'm not just in a, in a passing whim saying, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do it, I'll do it. I'm making an oath. It means, come what may, I'm going to do this. I, I'm arousing within myself my, my inner powers to, to, to do it, to fulfill my, my, my word. An oath makes it much stronger. How do we know that? When we're a child, we don't understand these things until we get older, what a post is and things like that. So we might give this oath, but do we actually, is that soul capable of really understanding it? That is it so our soul before we're born yeah. is far more open 
and wise and, and insightful than it is. As soon as we get into a body, a physical body, we're confined into the limitations of the body. The soul before it comes down is not confined. It sees everything, gets it all. Which also makes this actually a bit of a difficult thing to understand because who gets, who gets the challenges? Not the soul, but the soul in the body. It's, it's down here in this world that we get all the challenges. The soul has total clarity. Before we're, bo before we're born, the soul sees everything. It's, it's in front of God, sees truth. Just like after we leave this world, when a soul leaves this world, it sees the truth. It's in the world of truth. It's down here in this world that we get blinded and confused and distracted. So how can a child, before he was born, know the notion of badness or wickedness before experiencing it? It's not a child. Your soul is not a child. That's your, that's your physical, that's your physical age. The soul or whatever is making an oath to something that it's not aware of its existing ah. before coming to the world. Right. So that, 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 is, that is an interesting question. How, do, how would a soul know what it's getting into? So, so that's where the mashbin is mashbin makes much more sense. That this is not, this is not just a, a promise. This is an empowerment. You've been given the powers to face your challenges that will come. You've been given the energy that you will be righteous. You, do, you don't have to be wicked. The Even soul, though... The soul is given that. Yes, the soul has those powers. You're saying that the soul gets diminished once it ends. Correct. So, so, so yeah... So, who is the promise made to? I mean, do you differentiate between the body and the soul when the child is born? Well, no, that's the thing. Once, once you're born, first of all, you forget all this. You forget what happened up there. You forget all the knowledge and the wisdom and the insight that you had up there. It's, it's gone once you're born. And not only that, but in its place comes physical awareness. You're, 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 you, what you see around you is the, is the here and now, the physical world. So what, what good is this oath if you forget it and you made it when you were soul without a body and now you're in the body to, to face these challenges, how, how, how does the oath help? So we're taught that everything we experience before we're born, we may forget it. It's not consciously on our mind, but it's implanted in there. It's implanted in our, in our essence that we have a prehistory. We, we, have, we have experiences from before our lifetime. We're not aware of them. We don't, we don't, we don't, we're not consciously aware of them, but they're all deeply embedded in our subconscious. And so we, we do have the power to face our challenge. It's all there. The promise that we made back then, it pushes us. It pushes us to, to fight and, and, to, and to get better, to improve, to face our challenges. It, it's, it's all implanted there. So... So this is a very powerful way of starting the book. It, and and what, what I said before about Eitan, that strength of the soul, this is where it comes from. The, the oath that we, that we made, we, we made a promise, which means we were given the power. We were empowered to do this, to, to be a righteous person and not to be wicked. So the Alter Rebbe in the second paragraph here, then he picks up the second phrase of the oath. The first part of it, be, be righteous and don't be wicked, he's going to explain later on in the book. Uh, he immediately starts picking up on a contradiction in the second part. This requires to be understood, for it contradicts the Mishnaic dictum. There's a teaching in the Mishnah, part of the Talmud as well, Pirkei Avot, in chapter 2, that says, 
Do not be wicked in your own estimation. Don't look at yourself as a wicked person. It's one of the pieces of advice in Pirkei Avot, a beautiful part of the Talmud that speaks about ethics and about the right way to live. And it says, don't look at yourself as a wicked person. At the Bible, he says, sorry to stop you, he says, regard yourself as if you were wicked. Yeah, yeah, so he's saying that's the contradiction. He's saying, the first part, in, in, in Tractate Nidda, it says that you should look at yourself as a wicked person. But it says in Pirkei Avot, do not look at yourself as a wicked person. A, a, a clear, straight-out contradiction. And not only is it a contradiction in, in two texts, but it's a, it's a contradiction in logic as well. Because he says, furthermore, if a man considers himself to be wicked, he'll be grieved at heart and depressed. I will not be able to serve God joyfully and with a contented heart. While if he's not perturbed by this self-appraisal, it may lead him to irreverence, God forbid. This is a very deep thing here. That not only is, uh, have we got two texts that contradict each other, just looking at it logically, does it make sense what we, we make this promise? Even if everyone tells you you're righteous, you should look at yourself as being wicked. I should walk around saying, I'm a, I'm a wicked, evil person. That's what I should say. I'm a Russia. I'm, I'm a wicked person. I should walk around like that. If I, if I mean it, then I'm going to get depressed. We know, to, you know in, in pop psychology, it's, uh, there's all these affirmations, you know, that, that you should repeat over and over, you know, talk, talk about yourself. And what you say creates your reality, right? About, about other people and about ourselves. You know, you, if you call your child, you know, this is my rebellious child, this, this is my naughty one. Yeah, they will be. Well, they will be. It's like you've, give, you've given them that label, they'll, they'll pick it up. Oh, this is my problem child. Okay, you've, you've just created your problem child by, by saying it. Um, and if you say that about yourself, I'm a rotten person. I'm a low life. Okay, so now you've created that expectation. This, this, this is who you are. And you'll, you'll live it. Not only that, you'll, you'll become depressed because you believe those affirmations. Mm. Yeah, if I'm a low life, so uh, what hope is there for me? What's the point? Why make effort? Why try? And you, know, and, and you feel down and, and depressed. And, and later on in Tanya, Alter Rebbe has a very, very profound analysis of what depression really is. And he shows how it's actually, it's not a feeling, it's non-feeling. It's, it's becoming numb. And that leads to all the worst things. So he says, if you do consider yourself wicked, as the Talmud seems to say you're supposed to, you made this oath, I'm, a, I'm, I'm wicked. So you, you're going to become dejected, depressed. And why is that bad? Because then you can't serve God joyfully. And that is your whole mission. Your whole mission is to fulfill your, your, your part in the world, to, to do your thing. To achieve your little corner of the world, to, to, to enlighten it, to bring goodness into, into, into your place. Serving God is what we're here to do. God's mission for us is that we should bring light to the world. But you can only do that with joy. You cannot serve God with a dejected, lowly heart. It doesn't work. It has to be with joy. Where does he get that from? Well, it says in Tehillim, You should serve God with joy. 
It says in the Torah as well, that if you don't serve God with joy, all the negative things and the curses come. And this is a, a foundational principle of Hasidic thought, where there's a great saying of one of the Hasidic masters, um, Rabbi Aaron of Kalin said, being sad is not a sin, but it leads to all the sins. Isn't this a fundamental difference of Judaism to the other religions? Yeah, certainly many encourage a sort of a, a bit of a, a dour, you know. And, and within Judaism as well, there are, there are different schools. The Hasidic school emphasized the joy, which is, of course, a part of basic Judaism, but maybe, maybe not as emphasized as much. But uh, it says also in Tehillim, In the place of God, there is strength and joy. Meaning, if you're in God's presence, then you're strong and you're joyous. If you're not strong or you're not joyous, that means you're not in God's presence. You're not, you're not with Him. You're not, you're not connected. Because where Hashem is, there's life, energy, enthusiasm. There's momentum. When you're disconnected, there's misery. There's like darkness and, and, and weakness. So, so being joyous from, a, from a, a Hasidic perspective, the way Tanya is looking at it, being joyous is not... So you should have a more easy life. It's not, it's not the pursuit of happiness. It's that happiness is the path of serving God. Happiness is not the goal. We're, we're trying to be happy. The goal is to be good, to be a good person, to fulfill your mission, to bring light to the world. But to get there, you have to be joyous. Because when you have a negative attitude, you're not going to be a good person. Your best side is not coming out. And this is even if you're unhappy because you, f- you see yourself as a wicked person, because of, because of your, your, your moral lowliness. Even if that's the reason why you're unhappy, that's actually not good news. In fact, that is a, a, a tactic of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, that negative voice inside us that tries to pull us down, which we're going to learn a lot about through Tanya, its tactic is to make you feel bad about yourself, even about lofty things. To say, ah, I'm, I'm no good. No, I'm, not, I'm not a good person. I, I haven't done the right thing. And you can bring proofs. We can find things we've done wrong. But if we conclude, because I've done wrong, therefore I'm not a good person, and feel bad about myself and beat up on myself, I start to feel dejected and depressed. And what happens when we're depressed? What do we do? We don't do good things. We start to indulge in things, to try and distract ourselves or to anesthetize the pain. And that becomes a cycle where we get worse and worse and we end up messing ourselves up. All because we were disappointed with, with our, that I'm not, not a good person. That's a tactic of the, of the evil inclination, to stop you from serving God. So, says, says the Alter Rebbe here, how could it be that we make a promise before we're born that even if the whole world tells me I'm righteous, I'm going to look at myself as I'm evil? How can, we, how can we think that way? Because that will cause us to be depressed. And then we can't fulfill our mission. Now you might tell me, okay, well maybe what, what it means is you should say it, 
but don't feel bad. Maybe, maybe we, should, we should say I'm an evil person. I'm not, I'm not righteous. Even the whole world tells me, you know, you're a great guy. You're an amazing person. They don't know. They don't know. I know that I'm wicked. Maybe I'm supposed to say it, but, but, but not get depressed about it. Not, not feel it. Not, not, not feel it bad about it. to move forward and be good. Right, but not, but not feel bad. I shouldn't feel bad about my wickedness. Yeah. yeah. But then he says, at the end of that second paragraph, while if he's not perturbed by this self-appraisal, if it doesn't bother you, if you don't feel bad about saying I'm wicked, that will lead you to irreverence, God forbid, which means callousness. You become immune. Yeah, immune from it. Like, it doesn't bother, like cold-hearted towards it. If it doesn't bother you, if you're saying I'm wicked and it doesn't bother you, so then you're, you're, you've, you've lost sensitivity. You're desensitized. And in a way, how it's phrased here, that's the worst of the two. Mm. God forbid. Right, because what happens when you're desensitized? You don't care about anything. Yeah. Like, sort of what, that depressed Right, it's, it's a deeper depression. Once, once your heart is blocked, once you're not feeling anything, that, that, that's even worse. So, if you're wicked, and you're saying you're wicked, it should bother you. But, if I go around saying I'm wicked, and it bothers me, I'm going to get upset and dejected and depressed, and, and I, I, can't, I can't live. So I can't win either way. So not only is this a contradiction to what, what the Talmud itself says, the Talmud in one place, in Nidda, says that we, we make this promise, that even if the whole world tells me I'm, I'm righteous, I should think that I'm wicked. But then the Mishnah says, don't be a, a wicked person in your own eyes. And that makes sense, because... If you do, you're going to be depressed. And if you say that, but you don't believe it, then you, you become desensitized. So what, what's going on here? Is there anything to distinguish between the two phrases of wicked insofar as the first one is like, I am a wicked person, regarding myself as wicked. Whereas in the Mishnah, it says, and be not wicked, to do wicked things. Not really saying that you're a wicked person, but you're actually... In, in the Hebrew, it, you can't really make that distinction. Don't be a wicked person in your own eyes. Meaning, in your, We're talking about to estimate yourself as a wicked person, which seems to be the first one that's telling you to do that. Yeah, okay. Is it maybe just, just, maybe just to make you keep questioning it all the time and just, just staying on top of it and not mm -hmm. just... Be or not be, just always, mm -hmm. always questioning yourself. Where am I? What, what am I? Yep, yep. That could be. So then we, we have to soften the language a bit. It says that you should look at yourself as if you are wicked. Even the whole world is telling you you're righteous, regard yourself as if you're wicked. So we'll see, we'll see. It, it, it could be that. Also, an, an, another possibility which later the Tanya will pick up on is, it says, as if you're wicked. Look at yourself as if you're wicked. That's a bit different. If you were wicked. That, that's a bit yeah. different. So we'll, we'll yeah, see. It's we'll like see. Um, you were born into the state of already disadvantage because you're born into this world with this fight between yourself and your... It's a mm -hmm. Yeah, the mm -hmm. two 
plus and minuses kind of, and you need to bottle it. Right, right, right. By the way, what does it mean? The whole world tells you that you're righteous. It's, it's also an interesting phrase. The whole world tells you you're righteous. The whole world? Yeah. Where? It's going to be extreme. Where's, oh. Where do you have the whole world telling you you're righteous? Has anyone had that experience? The whole world. It's when you, I think that's when you feel in your bones, I tell you what, it's, it's not about the world tells you. It's if, if, even if you feel in your entire being yeah. that you are righteous, right. that's you question it. Right. Very, very good. That, yeah. It's not the whole world telling you, because the whole world doesn't tell you. It's that every indication tells you that you're righteous. Every interaction you have, it goes right. You're doing the right things. You're making the right choices. So it seems from the whole world, from everything you're doing, that you're righteous. Still, you have to look at yourself as wicked. So we have to understand why. What, you're beating yourself up? Has each phrase got the same, at the same level? Do they come from the same place? Well, the, the first one... one precedence over the other in far as... Coming for like well, this, level. Yes, a Mishnah, a Mishnah precedes the, the Talmud, yeah. the Gemara. So the second one is a teaching from the Talmud, the Talmudic sages. Some say it's from, uh, 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 I mean, it's, it's quoted as a Brisa, so it's from the same times as the Mishnah, but it's not as authoritative as a Mishnah. Um, but uh, we always try to reconcile rather than one overriding the other. So if we've got two teachings from the sages, one's from a Bryce, one's from a Mishnah, Mishnah may be stronger, but we, we want to try and reconcile the two. Especially when it's so blatant, the contradiction, it seems. One's telling you, look at yourself as a wicked, and one's saying, telling you, don't. So, so already in this, the first few lines, we've, we've, we've extracted some of the fundamentals of, of Hasidic thought that the Tanya is trying to teach us that we've been energized with incredible powers in our soul and that the only way to serve God is through joy. It, ha it has to be through joy. Joy is not something that comes as a result of things that happen to us. Being happy is not because things are going well in our life so we're happy. That, that's actually not the source of happiness. As you see, we can look around at, at the people we know that there are people who go through a lot of difficult stuff and they maintain this joy of life. There are people who have nothing really to complain about, and they find things to complain about and to be miserable. It, it's, it's a choice. Of course things happen that are very difficult, but, but, and, and being happy doesn't mean la-di-da either. Being happy means being alive, facing it with life, with, 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 with energy, even the difficult times. So it's a fundamental here, an, an assumption. We've got to, on the one hand, feel joy, at the same time, we have to be real. Being real means that if, if there's a problem, you have to feel it. If you, if you really are a wicked person, it should bother you. It should upset you. You can't, you can't become callous. You have to be a feeling, a real person. I remember when I was uh, in the dating game, when I, when, I was, when, I was, when I was single, and I was discussing with a friend of mine who we'd, we'd both taken a few blows in that... Uh, in that area of life. And we were discussing how um, in relationships as well, sometimes, you know, when you've had a bad experience, so 
it's natural to sort of shrivel up a bit. You, you go within yourself, you, you withdraw. If your, heart, your heart's been broken, so you're fragile. And you don't want your heart to be broken again. So you, so you shrivel up. And in that state, if you do meet somebody, well, you're protecting yourself so much that you're not really open to develop any feelings or, con or connection. And so it, it doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. But the only alternative is to put yourself out there and take that risk that your heart's going to be broken again. But if you don't do that, if you don't take that risk, if you don't open yourself up to it, so then how can you feel again? You can't feel anything. So yeah. So on the one hand, you've got to take the risk. You've got to feel. You've got to take that risk. Otherwise, there's no chance of love. At the same time, you need to protect yourself to some extent. So you have to balance it. You can't, you can't wear your heart on your shoulder, you know, and, and, and just fall for anybody. But at the same time, you can't be so defensive and protected that uh, there's like this uh, wall around you that no one can reach. So T Tanya understands that and says that if, if you're not feeling, you become irreverent, you become callous, you become cold. Th then you're not feeling anything. You've got to be able to feel a life of joy and also a life of sensitivity that I, I can be hurt. I can also be hurt. I'm, I'm alive. Okay. So these are the questions that he starts off with. And to get into the answer, he, he says the following. However, the third paragraph, the matter will be understood after preliminary discussion. This is the style. His style is questions on one topic, then I need to take you on a journey. We're going to go, going to go a different direction. And through this, we're going to get the answers. Long, short way. That's it. Very good. So what is the discussion? We find in the Gemara, also now back in the Talmud again, five distinct types, types of people. The Talmud in, in Tractate Brachot, the first Tractate of the Talmud, go, talks about five different types of people, categories of moral type of people. A righteous man who prospers, a righteous man who suffers, a wicked man who prospers, a wicked man who suffers, and an intermediate one, Benoni. Okay? Now, the Talmud there, is talking about different people. It's asking the classic question, the question that we all have. How is it that there are righteous people who suffer and there are wicked people who prosper? The, the ultimate question. That we see there are really good, good people who just have a hard life. And rotten people who get away with murder. And, 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 and they live fine. How is it? Where, where's, where's the justice? If there's God in the world, how, how does this work? So the Talmud in discussing that says, well, you've got righteous people who prosper and righteous people who suffer. Wicked people who prosper and wicked people who suffer. And then a Benoni, people in, in, in between. Benoni means in, intermediate, in between. So there, it is there explained that the righteous man who prospers is the perfect tzaddik. Tzaddik gamur, complete tzaddik. The righteous man who suffers is the imperfect tzaddik. Tzaddik she'en gamur. Not, not complete tzaddik. What that's saying in the Talmud, on a, just a simple level, is that the, 
the person who you see is righteous, but he's suffering, it's because he's not completely righteous. There's some, there's some hint of something that he's done wrong, and therefore he's suffering. The suffering is a cleansing for him. Every person goes through life and, and makes mistakes. That those mistakes have to somehow be cleansed. The soul has to be cleansed. And so there's a choice of having it in this world or the next world. It's much better to have it in this world than in the next world. If the cleansing happens here, you get off a lot with a little bit of suffering, rather than the next world where the suffering is more intense, more, more, more of an extreme cleansing. Like the Talmud says that if in this world, if you go through a little bit of suffering, if you stub your toe, is the example that it gives. You're walking, you stub your toe. It hurts to stubbing your toe. Straight away say, kapara. It should be a cleansing. It should be a cleansing of my sins. It's not saying that you're, you're being punished for your sins, and that's why you stub your toe. On the, on the contrary, when you stub your toe, when you go through a bit of suffering, see it as a, as a cleansing. It's cleansing some of my sins, because a small bit of suffering in this world releases you from a lot in the next world. Almost like being humiliated, right? That's right. That's another one. But if you have no suffering in this world, you're in trouble. In the next world, surely. Well, unless you're... Unless you're a tzaddik gamor. If, if you're a complete tzaddik, complete tzaddik, then, then there's no need for suffering. There's no, there's no need for it. I, I, I don't know any. Who was, I forgot what his name was. He was very sick and all the people were saying, you should be a wonderful person. Isn't that? He said, I'm glad to see you suffering. Do you know the story? Don't you? Mm -hmm. And the, the teacher got up and said, what the hell do you mean? And he says, thank God you're suffering here because otherwise you... So, it seems to contradict what's going on here. Well, no, that's the same thing. That suffering here means you don't have to suffer there. You're saying that there's a righteous man who prospers. It's a perfect thing. There is, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, a person who doesn't need to... Who doesn't need to suffer in this world. So he's not a benefit. Yes, for suffering then in the world to come. No, he said it's not. It's a perfect suffering. No, no, no. There's going to be good in the next world. No, your point was... Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That that he doesn't need to suffer in this world or in the next world. Because it's a, he's, he, he hasn't got any blemish that needs to be fixed. There's, no, there's nothing, nothing to, that needs fixing. That's, that's a different level. That's a... So... The thing is that that... Even that explanation is a little bit simplistic. To, to say that this guy's suffering because he's not a perfect tzaddik. Okay, but why is he suffering more than this guy who is not a, not a perfect Russia? Like, not a completely evil person, but, but he's getting away with, with, with murder. Like, it, it doesn't really answer the question. So the Alter Rebbe says here, in Raya Mehemna, in the middle of the paragraph, in Raya Mehemna, which is a section of the Zohar, we're going into a Kabbalistic work now. In the Kabbalah, Raya Mehemna, in Parshat Mishpatim, it is explained that the righteous man who suffers is one whose evil nature is subservient to his good nature, and so on. Meaning, the phrase used by the Talmud, the righteous man who suffers, is Tzadik Veralo. A tzaddik, a righteous person, veralo, but there's, but there's bad to him, which we translated as suffering. But there's a different way of reading it. Tzaddik veralo is not talking about suffering. It's talking about evil. 
There's a, there's a person who's a tzaddik, veralo, but he has evil. Meaning that he has evil, but it's subservient to his goodness. Veralo. He's a tzaddik, a righteous person. He has evil in him, but, the, but that evil is completely under control. He's, 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 yes, he's got it. He's, he's got it under control. Yeah, Ralo. He's got it. Meaning, and, and later Tanya is going to go into this in great detail, that the differentiation here between the complete Sadiq and the incomplete Sadiq means to what level have they conquered evil? Every single person is born into this world with a good side and an evil side. Without exception. We all have it. Uh, even a tzaddik who, who, who's, who's holding, holding back the evil. So he gets a present and he gets old himself? He gets a present? Present. What do you mean? He's joking. I mean like, no, not joking. Like, <laughs> if he's a tzaddik, yeah. yes, compared to the other one, you get benefits in the beginning? Yes, yeah. So, yeah, of course, the, ben the benefits... Although you work from in, in himself. And he has to, it's hard work. A tzaddik has to work on a daily basis to maintain that level of, 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 of righteousness. But a tzaddik is a person who's, who's got the battle. He, he's, he's in control. But here, there's different types of tzaddikim. There's a tzaddik gamur. That means where the evil is completely vanquished. Or there's Sadiq Varalo, he's still got evil inside him, but he's got it under control. That's a very subtle difference. Both of them are righteous, but there's a, there's a, there's a righteous person who isn't even tempted. And then there's a righteous person who's tempted, but has control. We'll see. We'll see. Good question. Because as we get more subtle in these levels, so we'll see, so where's, where does the tzaddik hold and where does the bendini hold? We'll, we'll get there. Can I just ask before yeah. you jump on? Yeah. Um, is there a dis can we distinguish between um, where suffering being something that is different to evil and being that it doesn't, it, it is not something you act on, but suffering that occurs to you. Mm. Yeah. Which you seemingly don't yes. control. Correct. So, so really, the way that Rai Mehemna, the Zohar, is understanding this discussion is it's not talking about suffering that happens to you. It's not talking about that. It's talking about your evil. Where are you in, in, in the spectrum? So there's the Tzadik Amor, where there's just no evil left. There's a Tzadik Varalo, an incomplete Tzadik, where... There's a bit of evil there. Okay. And then also in the wicked side as well. There's a completely wicked person, which means the goodness is dissolved. Like it's, it, it hasn't got a voice anymore. And then there's an incomplete wicked person. And that's a person who's always full of regrets and always wants to fix it, but they, but they keep falling. And the benoni is, a, is, a, is something else entirely. The good and the bad is... Dichotomic um, kind of definitions. What are they? What is the definition of good and what is the definition of bad? How does one know what is the good and what is the bad? 
philosophically, for one person, a good thing would be to do, I don't know, you know, means what, yeah. For another person, a good thing would be, I don't know, not, not to do the mitzvot and to spend time with the children or... It's also a mitzvah. No, there's no, there's no good... There's no, the, the, this, this is the, the amazing thing about all, all of our advancement in, in, in knowledge and, and all the progress in the world. We've never invented. Yep, correct. So, the Benoni, we're going to meet him in, in great detail. Because as he, as he starts explaining here, that Benoni sounds like in between, half half. But it can't be, and we'll see why soon. We'll see that the Benoni can't be just half, 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 half good, half evil, half Russia, half Tzaddik. Because if this book is also written to us, to each one of us, we can't be all Benoni. But it does say that we this that book we all, is for the Benoni. Correct. We can all be a Benoni. So we all are Benoni, basically. We all have the power to be a Benoni. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. We don't all have the power to be a Tzaddik. Even an incomplete Tzaddik. That that may not be our thing, but. The oath said, be a tzaddik, right? But don't be, a, don't be a rasha. We'll see. We'll see. It'll all come together. So uh, we're still in the middle of that paragraph. In the Gemara, yeah, five, fifth last line of that middle big paragraph. In the Gemara, end of chap chapter 9 of Brachot, it is stated that the righteous are motivated by their good nature and the wicked by their evil nature, while the intermediate men are motivated by both. Okay, so the Gemara says that the tzaddik is motivated by good nature only. The Rasha is in total control of their negative, their evil nature. And the intermediate, the Benoni, is motivated by both. So we're going to get into this, we're going to see this, that a righteous person is somebody who, we're all born with negative, we're all born with an evil nature as well as a positive nature. A righteous person is somebody who has turned around their evil voice to the point where it is not a voice anymore, and not a negative voice, not an evil voice. They just have a good voice, and that's all they follow. A rasha, a wicked person, is the exact other extreme, where their good voice has become uh, blotted out, and they're it, totally in the hands of their negative, lowly urges. The rest of us are in between where we have both voices calling out. We have an impetus for good, this drive to, to be righteous, to be selfless. To be so, so we've got both. We've got both voices pushing us constantly. And, and Tanya is going to describe what that battle means and how at any one moment, one of those two voices is dominating. You're listening to one or the other. And every single second it's a battle to decide which one. So how come, this a semantic question, how come the, don, the Tanya doesn't start from the middle, doesn't start to be a pain on me, and then try to be in the middle between <coughs> the good and the bad? You have both um, um, characters inside you, and you need to aim for that, to be a good person, which means being the middle ground, basically. Why does it start with this uh, extremism, with this extremi extremi 
tees, um, setting the boundaries, and then going around and and show you where you can go and the different directions where you shouldn't go. Well, we're going to see that the hero of Tanya is the Benoni. And the whole book of Tanya is really talking to the Benoni. Yeah. Um, it introduces it by saying, well, you made this promise to be righteous and not be wicked. To be a tzaddik and not be a rasha. We're going to see, and he's going he's gonna, to, I don't want to ruin the, the surprise, but we're going to see that that is saying be a Benoni. That's actually what that promise is. But we'll see how it's using the word tzaddik in Russia and what, what, it, what it actually means. But the Benoni is definitely the hero of Tanya and, and what we're all supposed to be. Yeah, I figured. But that's the question. Why, why doesn't it say from the beginning? Anyway, it would evolve, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think when, yeah. when, 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 when something evolves and it's your results of something, then you get much better understanding and connection with it. When someone just gives you something, mm -hmm. it's what it is. So you, it's, the process. it's the process that makes you think and makes yeah. you actually understand it. And that's when you actually get a, a, a <laughs> connection and a, 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 a bond with it. Correct, like, correct. You have to work it out. You own it. Very good. You have an emotional connection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. a, a last thought here. Let's end this paragraph. Um, so we said that the righteous person is driven by their, their good side, the evil person by their wicked side. The Benoni, the intermediate person, has both voices, the good and the evil, constantly battling. And, and Rabbah, one of the great sages of the Talmud, his name was Rabbah, declared, I, for example, am a Benoni. In, in discussing this, this uh, topic, he said, Abaya, one of his uh, learning partners, said, Master, you don't make it possible for anyone to live. If, if you're a Benoni, what are we? Like, you haven't left. Could be a subject, In other words, he's, he's saying, he's saying, he's fulfilling that, you're that saying, of saying, regard yourself as if you were wicked. Right, well, he's a Benoni, which we'll have to see. But he's, oh, so, so the question is, like, is he, is he lying? Is he exaggerating? Is you know, is he being humble? <laughs> you've got to be honest of who you are and what, what, what level you're on. Like, you've got to, you've got to be true to yourself. And so, Rabbah was the greatest sage. As later it says that he, he, he never stopped learning Torah, he, ever. He was constantly saying words of Torah all the time. He was completely enveloped in holiness at every moment. We're talking about a totally different plane, di different level to, 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 to anything we can imagine. And he said, I'm a Benoni. So when Abayah heard that, he said, you've left us all for the dead. You know what I mean? Like, if, you, if, you, if you're not a tzaddik, then, then, then what, 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 who, who can be? So, so what did he mean? So all of this, all this needs to be unpacked. And we're going to see Tanya is, is slowly going to show us that the Benini is a very high level. That Rabbah could even think he was a Benini. It's a very high level. But at the same time, it's something that we can all aspire to and, and, and reach. To be a complete tzaddik, maybe not. Maybe that's not for us. But the struggler who's constantly struggling, we can be. And, and we can win every moment. Are there levels of Benoni? Yeah. Yeah. There are. There are. Um, we'll, we'll get there too. So...
We're going to stop there. We'll continue, please God, next week in, in the midst of chapter one. But what, what, we've, what we've seen today, to, to summarize, is that what we know, we've got unanswered questions that we don't know. But what we do know is that our soul has been given this incredible power before we come into the world. And it's told straight off. This world is not about accumulating possessions. And this world is not, not about having fun or, 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 or just having a, a restful, you know, holiday trip. Up today, that I'm going to be either tempted to do something that might feel good but is not good, or something that may be very uh, lucrative but it's not so honest, or something that I might enjoy it but it's going to be at the expense of somebody else and it's going to be hurtful. I I'm going to have opportunities today to make choices every single day. And all that is, I'm being set up, my soul is being set up. To, to see if it can shine and bring light into this moment. Can, can I bring light into the moment that I'm facing today? And I was given an oath, meaning I was energized, I was given the, the energy to make the right choice. But then it's up to me. Because I, I made the oath, but I've, I've forgotten. I don't remember the oath, but deep in my soul I know that it's there, the power to make the right choice to bring light to this day. Please God will have that wisdom. Yeah.